I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. How's my audio and stuff? Sounds good. You sound good. Yeah. Hey everyone, I'm Evelyn, and thanks for joining me here on Repin. Today, I have a talented Canadian actor. He speaks three languages, French, English, and Arabic. I'm over here just trying to get English right. He's also got a long, incredible list of credits. You've seen him on CW's The Flash, Showtime's Homeland, ABC's The Good Doctor, and currently he's on two huge Netflix shows you have to check out. Virgin River, and you can also see him on Firefly Lane. He's a passionate advocate for diversity and representation in the arts, and you'll see why. He's taken time out of his busy schedule to share with us what he's experienced in his life, career, and how he's had to navigate the labels the world has placed upon him. And you'll see what he's doing to make a difference. Please welcome Patrick Sabongi. Patrick, first and foremost, congratulations on the incredible list of successes that you've had with Virgin River Season 2 on Netflix. You've got Firefly Lane on Netflix. You've got Shameless. So congratulations on all of us. Thank you so much for the congratulations and, and thanks for having me. Oh my God, I'm, I'm just happy that you're able to kind of wedge me in in between all of these projects. 
How have you been doing, though? I mean, uh, it's been sort of a crazy time, and you've clearly been busy. So how have you been doing otherwise? It's a loaded question, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been a crazy year and a half, and uh, I have been busy, and I I carry a certain amount of guilt, actually, for how busy I've been, because it felt like as the world was shutting down, I just got busier. Uh, Right. Outside of, you know, acting and performing, I have a multifaceted life and a lot of different aspects of my, of my profession, my pursuits, my, you know, creative endeavors, all of those things just started kind of taking off over the course of the last year. So for the moment that the industry shut down, it was a welcome pause in, in the auditioning and chasing jobs and availabilities and all of that and allowed me to get my head on straight and focus my energies in other directions. So I'd say I'm doing okay. It's good to to find the good spots during these very difficult times for everyone. So I, I don't think that you should feel bad about it. But let's start from the beginning because, you know, this is a podcast. Can you kind of set up a little bit about your background, your heritage? Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you kind of look like physically because people can't see you. Ah, well, that's a really interesting question because it factors heavily into how the world uh, treats me. Exactly, yeah. I'm of Egyptian heritage, born in Canada. I usually rock a pretty Middle Eastern looking beard. Okay. And, uh, and I mention it because, ironically, in my profession, and my agents laugh about this, but I often spend more time negotiating facial hair <laughs> with shows than I do any other aspect of my job. Honest. And it's not a joke. What, the, you know, the, the offer's on the table, but would you be willing to shave? Mm-hmm. It's this ethnicity meter right. that uh, that they try to negotiate around, which is hilarious to me. I know that you're not kidding, actually. And by the way, your beard looks great. When you find yourself in these conversations, or, or do you kind of catch yourself going, like, we are negotiating about like facial hair? Like, I understand you understand the business of it. That's not what I'm, I'm asking. But when you have these negotiations and this meter, which I love that you, you said that, I mean, how do you process that and how do you navigate those conversations because they're they're tricky everyone needs to work it's it's about a job but at the same time obviously this is about identity as well how does that hit you internally it strikes at the very core of who i am and what i'm doing and the impact of the work i leave behind i know we're talking about my beard but This journey of me and my facial hair has defined my position in the industry, not because of other people, but because of how much I allow myself to tolerate. And I I thank the heavens that I have an incredible life partner, my wife, Kira Zagorski, who's also an incredibly talented actor and, and director and acting teacher. She has been my sounding board and has been able to ground me and reflect back to me the harm that is caused to me when they ask me to change what I look like, because I know they're asking me to change who I am. And so my journey as an artist and as an actor, and I know I'm going so deep on like my fucking beard, but it's not a joke. No, I know it's not a joke. Go for it. It is a constant negotiation within myself of how much integrity I'm going to allow myself to have, or how much I'm going to compromise my beliefs to get this job and put food on the table. I can track my arc in this industry and 
finding my own voice by how much I let them change what I look like. You know, first moved to Vancouver, my wife and I are both actors. And so, you know, the financial insecurity is real. The ups and downs are real. Right. No, I get that. We we had two very young kids and probably $100,000 or more of American student loan debt hanging over us. Wow. We got to Vancouver just after the writer's strike in Hollywood and everything slowed down and neither of us worked for months. You know, we were down to our last 50 bucks in the bank account, which is totally irresponsible for two parents, right? But that's literally where we were. And I'd been auditioning like mad. I finally got this job. It was a TV movie. And there was sword play. It was like right up my alley. Right. I was so grateful. I remember sitting on Kira's exercise ball in the living room and like crying as my manager is talking to me, talking me through the deal. And then I get, you know, to the first hair and makeup thing. They bleached my hair. They shaved my beard. And they glued my ears back. They glued your ears back? Yeah. Why? Because I guess big floppy ears is too ethnic. You do not have big floppy ears. That was a huge area of insecurity for me. And every day they would glue my ears back, bleach my hair, make sure I was clean shaven. And I could tell the foundation they were putting on was like a lot lighter than I was. Right. It was very Eurocentric. And that was, it hurt. I, I was so grateful for the job. And I really, really enjoyed the job. But I didn't realize how much it hurt for them to change my identity with, without really consulting. And that was kind of the, the beginning of how much of this am I going to accept? How much of this am I going to take? I did reach a point in my career where I decided certain roles I'm just not going to take and there's certain, certain things I'm not going to accept anymore. Right. Be- because not only does it hurt me, but I don't want my kids, because they know who I am, and then I don't want them to look at me and compromise my integrity. And once I realized there were other Middle Eastern, North African people in the world mm-hmm. watching my career, watching me, listening to the things I might say on social media or these messages I get about, I've never seen anyone look like me in a position of authority, thank you, or whatever. And I realized that the choices I make have an impact in the real world. And so I have a responsibility. Like I'm not going to play the gratuitous terrorist anymore. I've done that. If I'm going to play a villain, there's going to be some serious conversations about how we're going to frame that. I'm not opposed to playing villains. I'm not going to play an Arab fundamentalist, you know, terrorist for no reason. Right. Portraying more stereotypes and sort of forwarding that imagery. But just to be devil's advocate for some people that might be listening, they can say, well, Patrick, you're an actor. You're supposed to be all different things. You're an actor. You're supposed to be able to to be blue. You're supposed to be an alien. You're supposed to be able to fly. You're supposed to be something other than yourself. What would your response be to that? Because I hear what you're saying, and that's a really tough line to find. This meter. Let's keep using that meter. Like, you know, your threshold for tolerance um, but what would you say to the people that would challenge you and say to you, Patrick, you're an actor. You should become other people, other things. So much wrapped up in that. Part of me wants to respond like Serena Williams and be like, okay, what have you done? Their understanding of what an actor is and what acting is, is based on what? On what acting awards, what acting theory have they developed? What books on acting have they 
written. Right. How many students have they taught their notion of what acting should be? Right. But everybody's an expert, right? Everybody is a, is a movie critic. Everybody is a theater critic. And, that, and that's part of why we put ourselves out there. And that's fine. And, and it's wonderful. But really what I believe is this. I am not going to fault any other actor for taking any other role. Mm-hmm. It's not objectively wrong to play a terrorist. It is subjectively wrong for me to play a terrorist. Because I don't know anyone in my whole Arab existence who holds those beliefs. Right. I don't believe in those things. And I'm uncomfortable doing, I've done my share of perpetuating stereotypes. I don't have to do that anymore. Right. I've earned my stripes and I have other career options and I am more than happy to live with the consequences. But I'm not going to fault an up-and-coming actor for taking one of the roles that I've turned down because they got to eat and they got to experiment and they got to figure out their artistic voice. I've figured out mine. And because I have, it is a compromise of my own integrity for me, Patrick Sabongi, at this moment to play those roles. Completely fair. Now, here's the other thing that I sort of wanted to touch upon, and I don't want this to go without notice because I think this is huge. I really appreciate that you're so aware of what you're putting forth into, not just on screen. I mean, it's entertainment, but storytelling is one of the most, if not the most powerful tools. I also really love that you're super aware of what you're putting forth as a father, um, as a person. So the, the thing that I sort of wanted to touch upon is that meter and that tolerance and threshold must be very difficult for you. Is it something that is still very fluid? I would imagine that it is a struggle. I'm on the production side and there is a lot of uncertainty even on my end. But uh, I think that's just something that is consistent, ironically, uh, throughout entertainment. You are at the mercy in many ways of the, the circumstances you're in at the time in your life and also the work. So for you, I would imagine that it's sort of magnified. How do you find that your threshold is like, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, it's a case by case basis. And um, really, I don't mean to be crude, but like Go for it. the only opinion I give a shit about is what Kira thinks. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's true, man. Like, uh, I, I know everybody's got an opinion and there's right and wrong and there's, you know, debt collectors and stuff. But like, if Kira says it's cool and we go broke, we'll do that until we get back on our feet. And I've turned down jobs that would have been life changing that I literally told my agent, I will do that for a million dollars. Right. It's not, I'm not saying no. And it was, it, you know, it was a particular show and they really, offered me this, you know, this bad guy. And I was like, no, I can't do it. I I even refused to read for it. And they still pursued me and still knocked on my door. And then the producer and the executive producer and the showrunner called me and I never had that call before. And they're like, we really think this needs to be you. We want him to be affable. And the fact that you don't want to play him means you have to play him. And I was like, okay, send me more materials and I'll read it. And I read it and I couldn't. And I said, I'll do it for a million dollars. They obviously turned, you know, turned me down. And then offered me another role in that same show. And then every time I was out with that producer and that showrunner, they cannot wait to tell the story about how I turned them down. They're like, this guy, 
you know how awesome this guy is? We offered him this lead bad guy role and he turned it down and did two episodes instead. And, and so that just uh, crystallized for me. People respect integrity. You know, whether you think you're burning a bridge, maybe not. I think I built a stronger bridge in that case because now they know exactly who I am. That's awesome. That's such a great story. So it's, it's very individual. It's in the moment, me, where I'm at in my life, because I do accept this, and this is something I try to instill in young professional actors. It's an oxymoron. Professional means you're going to do something to make money. Being an actor means you're going to be an artist and you're going to tell stories. If you're going to be a professional actor, you're going to have to constantly negotiate between the two sides of you. And if you let one overtake the other, the other atrophies. If you treat acting just as a business, you might get gigs, but the artist inside you and what you need to say might atrophy and vice versa. If you're just going to be 100% integrity and just be the artist, well, then the business side might suffer. So it's a constant battle and negotiation between making money at this thing. And if it's not this, if I'm not going to, pardon the expression, but pimp out my artist, then like I have to do something else. I, I have to flip burgers. And if I'm, I'm not vegetarian, but like some vegetarians have to flip burgers to make a living. Right. And I understand that. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to judge them for it. But you just have to see where you're at in terms of which side's going to win out. So it's a constant negotiation. It's constant. like every single day. Yeah. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now, when we, we obviously talked on the phone a little bit before this, this session, and um, there's something that I sort of wanted to get to. You had said to me, you grew up with a great, loving family. Tell me a little bit more about that. And, and what struck me was you initially said to me, I feel like a fraud. I was like, what? It didn't make sense to me until you sort of broke it down. You know, what did you mean by you felt like a fraud? And tell me a little bit about sort of your family life and, and why, because it sets up into like why you feel like a fraud. It comes from the context of... I mean, you grew up in Canada, right? You I grew did. up in Canada and you never really felt different despite your Egyptian heritage, right? I grew up not just in Canada. I grew up in Montreal. 
Mm-hmm. I'm in New York at this moment, and there's maybe this is the only other city that I've seen that has this much cultural diversity. Right. Montreal, for me, in, in the environment I grew up in, being different is what made you the same. In my immediate environment, there was no, it didn't feel like we were minorities. Mm. You heard so many different languages. You saw every shade of skin color. Everybody was couched in their own heritage. Uh, so ca- Canada is a little bit different in that the expression is it's a Canadian mosaic. Right. Right. Rather than a melting pot. A melting pot suggests that you kind of lose your own integrity and you all kind of become, um, yeah. yeah, you all become American. In Canada, everybody keeps their heritage, keeps their language, keeps their culture. Mm-hmm. And then you line them up all together and then you zoom out and you have the full picture of the country. And so that was the environment I grew up in where everybody had had some difference. Right. And we just learned to embrace all of that. And then that's not to say that there isn't racism. Right. Even this past week in Ontario, a Muslim family was run down because they're, they're run down in the street by a car because they're Muslim. Like now there's some horrible racism happening in Canada. I think it's just something you can't escape no matter where you are, unfortunately. Yeah. So why do I feel like a fraud? Because I spend so much of my time now, you know, um, advocating for inclusion and representation and diversity because I believe in every single person's right to be who they are and to enjoy every aspect that our world has to offer that is denied to them because of who they are and somebody else's opinion and somebody else's fear and and, and ignorance. Uh-huh. And I understand that now looking at me, people probably understand where that's coming from. Oh, you know, he's a Middle Eastern guy. He probably faced discrimination and he's probably had to fight for his position in life. But what makes me feel like a fraud is that I didn't face that same level of discrimination that a lot of my brothers and sisters out here have. Right. I grew up in a very loving home, stable family life, supportive parents. My heritage was embraced and celebrated because everybody's was, you know, as I was growing which up. Which is great. Yeah. Which is amazing. I remember getting into arguments with people about, I got cast in a play and some people weren't happy about my casting. It was The, the play was Disgraced by Ayad Akhtar and it's about a Muslim man and, um, you know, and his wife and friends. And he's he's confronted by the meaning of his belief system. And Mm-hmm. And there were actors who kind of went public with their displeasure at my casting because essentially they were saying I wasn't brown enough. I wasn't ethnic enough to play Amir Kapoor. It was like a discrimination challenge. Like, well, have you ever, you know, been this? And have you ever been bullied and picked on because of the color of your skin? And I was like, no, but I've been pulled over at the airport and my children's hands have been swabbed for explosives at the airport. And like... So you almost had to prove that you were like ethnic enough to play this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was I was like, what is this conversation? Can you clarify the thought of being a fraud and this conversation where you almost had to argue to prove that you were ethnic enough? I think what factors in is that there's no denying that the world treats you differently based on your appearance. Yes. And that question. If you're perceived as more appealing. Mm-hmm. then you have a lot more leeway in where you can go and the spaces you can navigate, you know, in the world around you. Without question. And I'll say this, like pretty people get a lot more acceptance 
and latitude to do whatever they kind of want to do and they get a pass. When you found yourself defending your ethnicity, that you were indeed ethnic enough to your own community, was that a little bit of a, pardon my French, head fuck? Because normally you're like, you know, trying to be represented outwardly to the rest of the world. And now you're kind of reversing, trying to say, well, I am ethnic enough to play this part. Like, what was that like for you? It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because outside of just being an actor and a performer, I do a lot of volunteer stuff and I sit on a lot of diversity and inclusion committees. And I was being persecuted by the people who I've spent years trying to create opportunity for. Right. These are my compatriots. These are my brown brothers and sisters who I sat on the diversity and inclusion committee of the union, on the the diversity committee for uh, the theater awards up in Vancouver. And I spend way too much volunteer time trying to fight for representation and create opportunities for these folks. Right. And then to turn around and and see the, you know, oh, who's calling? Great. It's it's so-and-so. And then have them attack me for taking an opportunity away from them because they felt like they were more ethnic and more a- accurate for the part. That's a tough place to be. It's really tough because, and you know, it wasn't the first time. Right. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be the last. No. Not and, for a while. We have yeah. a lot of work to do in that regard. When you grew up mm-hmm. um, and you had the fortunate privilege, which is even odd to even call this privilege that you didn't have to face racism to the extent that a lot of people did. But you fortunately were loved and accepted and never had a a struggle with identity with, you know, your background and heritage. When did you realize, you know, when you move about the world, it wasn't necessarily about how you see yourself, but the impact of how you move around in this world is almost more about how people impose their optics on you. Yeah, I, I kind of I remember the day that that happened. So, um, and this is not unique to me. I've heard it, you know, said in a lot of different ways around the, the Middle Eastern, North African community. But our identity didn't change, but, our, but the world's perception of our identity changed like the morning of September 12th, 2001. And the, you know, the dark humor joke is that we all went to bed white on September 11th and woke up September 12th brown. All of a sudden, our presence meant something different. And as an Egyptian guy, you know, Egypt was very, you know, uh, a lot of those guys ended up having been trained or being, you know, Egyptian. And so Egypt was involved. And so before, you know, September 11th, you'd say Egypt and people thought, oh, cool, pyramids in the Sphinx. Now you say Egypt and they're like, oh, terrorists. And they think of, you know, the the evil stereotypes. Right. And I had just moved to Orange County from Montreal. And so my environment changed. What I represented to the people around me changed. And and I, I started to take inventory of how I impacted the world around me. And you'd mentioned how storytelling is a very powerful tool. And yeah. something I, I started to realize is that um, the stories we tell in, in the theater or on TV or in film, you know, we say that, that plays and stories and movies hold up a mirror to society. 
and reflect society back to us, right? Yes. I don't know if that's completely accurate because I think those stories shape our culture. I think they normalize certain things. When plays and movies become canonized and become ingrained in the in the public psyche, they establish what is normal and who we are as a society. And so I take my responsibility as a storyteller very seriously because I realize if this thing gains purchase, you know, in the zeitgeist, this will define how people like me are seen. It's not just a reflection. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. A lot of times, I think a lot of people say, I know who I am and that's enough. And yes, that is absolutely important. But when you realize how important and powerful outside optics are put on you, like you said, overnight, mm-hmm. you your ethnicity took on a completely 180 turn mm-hmm. to how people reacted to you mm-hmm. and your your community and your heritage. Talk about the optics of what that's like, having that optics put on you when you know that's not true. In fact, your community, as you said earlier, you don't know anybody that had the radical extreme views that those terrorists had. It's individual people that were radicalized. It's not communities. And that's so critical to remember. Was that the time that you realized like, oh, me knowing who I am isn't enough. It's it's also understanding like how you have to contend with the outside perspective that's put on you. What was that like? Um, I, the way I think I tried to deal with that is by doing a lot of work, just being out and helping people and creating opportunities. And I started, a, I helped start a mentorship program and I realized that like just knowing who I am isn't enough. I need to, have a broader impact. I need to create opportunities around me. Right. And I need to let people see the effects of the things I do so that I'm not just judged by their prejudice. Right. But um, I'm judged by my actions. And that that does become exhausting. Like when the world started to take notice of, of BIPOC artists and I mean, this is probably the same in every industry. We all instantly became experts and spokespeople for our whole segment of the population. And then, you know, I began by embracing that role and going, yes, well, this is how I think. And this is what, and then I realized I was like, Whoa, I'm not a scholar. Like I'm not a critical race theory scholar here. Like I can tell you what I think and what I believe, but just because of who I am doesn't mean I have it all figured out. And it's a huge responsibility. It is exhausting to feel like the constant spokesperson within sort of your sphere. <laughs> yeah. When you've sort of gotten this dual perspective of seeing like, oh, it's not enough to, for me to just know who I am. I also have to contend with the outside lens of how I, I'm seen. Like, what do you draw on to continue to move forward positively and to not be overwhelmed or disillusioned by society's labels or people's preconceived notions of who you are? All I can do is try to bring the fullness of who I am to everything I do. And I have all these like, paradoxes and, and nuances about myself. And if I fixate on showing the world this particular aspect of myself, mm-hmm. then I'm just putting myself in a different box and limiting 
the world's perception of who I am and what I can be. So I, I try to, you know, make sure I don't lead with anger. I don't lead with frustration, even though it's a fight for equity in the world around us. It doesn't always have to like be framed as a fight. Right. Like I can do silly things and I can, I can play bad guys and I could do in, in, through my characters, like morally reprehensible things. Um, so I don't always want to put out the exact same kind of, uh, what is it? There's an expression, the, um, like the saintly immigrant thing, like it's, it's overcompensating, right? You're tilting too far to the other side then. Yeah. So that's why like, I loved doing shameless cause like I was a dick, you know, <laughs> like, he's just a gentrifier. And like, as soon as I got the size for shameless, I was like, okay, cause everybody in shameless has some kind of moral flaw flaw. And it's important for people to see a full human being, you know? Right. As human beings, we can be more than one thing all at once. Speaking of, um, you know, continuing to open doors and inspire and mentor people, which you've done all the way through your career in various uh, ways, you are now the head of BFA acting in CUNY Brooklyn College. Super awesome. Your students must be shitting themselves. (laughs) You've got huge shows on the air. So tell me a little bit about what attracted you to be to take, you know, these students on and what you want to pay forward. I've always loved teaching and I've always hated being broke. Uh, <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> yeah. I hate being broke too. Yeah. I acknowledge that some of the, the uh, this integrity we talked about and the moral stances I take and, yeah. and the roles I have to pass on, it, it's harder to, to be at integrity with myself if I really need that money, if I really need that job. And in fact, of course, even if it wasn't associated with my, my heritage or my identity as an artist in general, I think your craft is compromised by the need for money. Well, listen, everyone has to eat. There's a practical, like you said, there's the, the business and the creative, right? Yeah, exactly. There's a constant balance between the practical things of just like existing. Mm Mm-hmm. And then being, a, you know, an artist and doing what you love. So I think that is extends beyond entertainment. Yeah. But what are some of the things that you want to teach and like pass forward to your students in terms of learning your voice? Part of why I wanted to teach is not just to give me that financial baseline, but it's so that I, I can really focus on who I am and what I want to say without it being compromised by chasing every job. Right. So being able to teach and have this uh, regular gig where I'm forced to contend with all of these young artists who are also seeking their voices. They might not know it yet, but I think being constantly engaged in that conversation, who are you, what do you want to say? This is their slogan now for the BFA acting program at Brooklyn College. Brooklyn College, BFA in acting, who are you? I love that. It's a place for people to come and work on their craft and work on technique, but through all of that, find themselves and what is going to be a fulfilling career in storytelling. It excites me to, A, instill a work ethic in young artists because it reminds me to never rest on my laurels. So everything I teach them, I'm, I'm reminding myself of and I'm, I'm teaching myself. You're renewing your values. Yeah. And I learn from them all the time. And, you know, this is a really, really tough time, obviously, to be an artist and 
CUNY Brooklyn College has one of the most diverse student bodies of any university in the country, probably in the world. To have the opportunity to be here in Brooklyn, you know, the home of most deaf and Jay-Z and, and Basquiat, the, the creative minds that have come out of this area at this moment of transition in our society, where not only is there a racial reckoning and people are seeing each other differently and embracing each other's identity and self-identity more, but now we have to reinvent theater? Like, what is even theater now over Zoom? We did a bunch of plays and we're like, we have to do theater. I was like, okay, on a stage? Nope, in a two-dimensional box on a screen. And then we're like, okay, cool. And who else is going to go like, like, that's what theater artists do. We're like, oh, okay, cool. Well, let's do theater then over Zoom. So being in this moment and being able to reinvent everything about what we do, uh, I, oh, I couldn't imagine uh, a more rewarding and fulfilling pursuit. I'm so happy for you that you have this place and platform. Really excited for the students to get a teacher like you because you're really passing along practical, learned experiences firsthand. And those lessons are invaluable. And all of these lessons that you're offering are going to lead them to finding who they are and also their voice. I'm really excited for them. You almost make me want to be an actor, but I have no talent whatsoever. Um, we, so, we can help you with that. We can help you with that. <laughs> we'll okay, do it over fine. a pint. We'll do it over a pint. Tiny little baby steps, though. I think I'm pretty helpless, though, Patrick. Okay, so sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. I am Patrick Sabongi, and I represent the undiscovered artistic voice in each of us. Thank you to Patrick Sabangi for taking time out to guest on the show for his honesty and heart. Don't miss Patrick on Firefly Lane and Virgin River, both available on Netflix. And jump online and follow Patrick on social media. I'll have his links in the episode description. On the next episode of Reppin, we have powerhouse actress from General Hospital, Nancy Lee Gron. I made it clear from the beginning that I wasn't going to fit into somebody else's idea of what I'm supposed to be. Hi, everybody. I'm Nancy Lee Gron, and I'm coming to Reppin. Reppin is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. And guys, every episode is available for download. And share, share, and share. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, Good Pods, or wherever you're listening. And let's talk, guys. I'm on Twitter at Reppin Podcast. And you can get more of our guests on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. Check out some exclusive content that I'll have for you there. So go now. Always thank you to Nelson Pinero, my technical director and musical composer, for all of his time, talent, and care. Always love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.